Good morning, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On The Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On The Money. Well, welcome to Paul Rudy's On The Money on this gray day, but we'll try to make it day a little bit brighter for everybody. Uh, I'm Paul Rudy. I'm with Paul Rudy's On The Money. If I seem distracted, we're trying to do a live Facebook show now. Shows you how hip we are, you know. Uh, Son Paul has kind of been behind that one, so the battery may run out of the phone. Who knows? It's a new iPhone X, so hopefully we'll get an hour's worth of video. I'm in here today with uh, Dr. Fred Gertz. Dr. Fred, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, good to be here. Uh, I haven't checked the market recently, but it's an interesting few days. Uh, it <laughs> seems to be, it's an interesting few days. It'll be interesting to see. We, we'll get into that in a bit, but we talk, I talked a couple of shows ago about which path is it going to follow? Is it going to you know, rebound straight up or is it going to kind mm-hmm. of a double bottom and try to recover? Anyway, it's neither here nor there. I'm with uh, David Rudy, Certified Financial Planner Professional and Retirement Income Certified Professional. David, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me on the show. And Financial Advisor, Ryan Repko, who works with me also at Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning. Call in with your questions, 217-356-9397, or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 351-5357. You can also email your questions to talk at wdws.com. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. Well, guys, I guess we'll find out eventually if our Facebook Live actually works. And I take it that even if they don't watch it live, they'll be able to go back if somebody wanted to see how the show actually looks, what we're actually doing. And Right. We uh, can actually publish the recording on our Facebook page, which I, I think we're planning on doing. All right. So in a bit afterwards, uh, RudyWealth.com, and you can go see it. Not that anybody actually wants to see it, Fred, but, yeah. you know, uh, <laughs> I actually find myself uh, watching certain people's live videos, uh, certain thought leaders in our industry, um, and I and I enjoy it. And sometimes it's, you know, I've been out and about. Of course, I've been doing the show since, I think, 1990, and a lot of people have never seen me. And But I'll, I'll start talking in a grocery store or a Walmart or whatever, and I'll say, hey, I know that voice. So <laughs> evidently you do something long enough, people pick up your voice. And other than, uh, you know, it's always probably nice to put a face with a voice, except for me probably <laughs> is the only exception to that rule today. People will find out. Well, Fred, the Federal Reserve has been sounding a little more hawkish. People are worried about that a little bit. The yield curve, which we talked about, which tracks the difference between longer-term and shorter-term bond yields, has begun to flatten, but it's certainly not flat. Uh, We've talked about um, that's typically a prelude, though, well in advance of a recession warning. Uh, It seems like the Fed has really been focusing on this yield curve. Uh, And again, it's probably one of the best economic predictors of a recession. Not perfect. And that just means when the 10-year yield on the 10-year treasury is less than the three-month yield. And when that happens, that tends to put up red flags for a potential recession. So right now, we're at least 1% different. So we certainly, while it may be flattening, it's not flat. So I think the Federal Reserve, my guess is, Fred, is if they go and they push rates in such a fashion where we do get an inverted yield curve, they probably will get... uh, you know, they'll get accused of intentionally causing recession, I suppose. We right. hear that from time to time historically that the Federal Reserve or it's a Federal Reserve induced recession. I don't know if that's yeah. even true or not. But well, they're usually uh, relatively mild. And uh, the uh, big exception of that was uh, 2007 to 2009, which was not <laughs> induced by the, the Fed. They were trying to prevent that. But most other times, uh, there may be some slowing uh, connected with uh, Fed policy. There's kind of a, uh, at, at this stage of an expansion, uh, you can kind of replay what's gone on uh, several times before. Uh, this expansion is uh, um, nearing 10 years now, nine years at least uh, this summer. And people start talking about when is it going to end. And then the, the response from policymakers is that uh, recessions don't end just by time. They end by something happening. There's no particular reason why we can't expand for a long period of time. And they also talk about uh, soft landings and glide paths and so on, trying to uh, slow things down without necessarily uh, causing a recession. Unfortunately, uh, we don't have all the tools to do all, the, all of those things, but there certainly is that concern right now. And we have kind of a double whammy now. The uh, 
the Fed is, is trying to uh, tighten monetary policy, and then the uh, Trump administration is throwing a wrench in it, and um, with all kinds of things happening, which may also slow the economy unintentionally. So we have uh, one group trying to do it in a in a kind of structured way, uh, someone else doing it in a kind of a haphazard way. It would seem with uh, $2 trillion still left in excess reserves in the Federal Reserve System that um, – I guess tightening is probably isn't what they're up to right now. I think you're right. I think they're just trying to ease their way towards tightening, which right. doesn't make any sense. It's we also had, we had two uh, things happening. If you're a, a Keynesian, you would say, well, now's the time to uh, tighten things a little bit, um, uh, possibly raise taxes or cut government spending. We've done just the opposite. Is that to build a reserve for rainy days down the no, road? No, or? it's just trying to slow the economy. Again, I don't okay. think many, many people – believe that uh, today, and at least in the uh, uh, most extreme form. But we've had two things happening. One, a big tax cut, and secondly, uh, a big expenditure bill coming at a time when unemployment's at a historic low. So it's not exactly uh, the, the timing most people would uh, suggest. It seems like this Keynesian theory has been a little bit hijacked. It always struck me that in some, t- in some ways it was sensible in its original intent. That is, mm-hmm. in good times, prepare for bad times. And that is, you know, uh, make sure that you build surpluses for the times when you're on the other side and the economy's weakening where you can step on the gas, but you have, you have the actual reserves to do it as opposed to, you know. Well, the, the, the true Keynes is don't, don't worry very much about reserves. It's more uh, slowing or accelerating the economy without much regard to uh, to reserves, but uh, getting into kind of some background, uh, uh, there was a 20 or 30 year period from the uh, 70s up until the uh, late 2000, uh, 2000s that uh, people kind of uh, moved away from the Keynesian theory, but some people came back to it after the Great Recession. So it's kind of in limbo right now. It, it seems to be almost like situationally uh grasped these different theories from time to time. Right. There's also a political element that is always uh, uh, more fun for legislators and the president to cut taxes and increase spending as opposed to doing the opposite. So there is a tendency towards so expansionary kind of policy. You're saying it's somewhat political. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> forbid. Uh, we're going to move on. Uh, Sun Paul wrote an article. It's actually published by Investopedia about the five keys to investor success. I thought it was a really concise and good article, spoken like a true father I know. Uh, I never wrote articles for the Internet back when I was their age. Of course, there wasn't an Internet. And they wouldn't be Um, concise. Right, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) It's because I would take up all the bandwidth because it would take so long. In reality, there's only a handful of key factors that determine what type of uh, investment experience a person is going to have, whether, in essence, they're going to be a successful investor or not. We're going to talk a little bit about those five keys today with uh, Ryan and David and, and Dr. Fred Gertz. Um, I noticed the first one, and that's, pro- that's the ranking I would have given it, uh, and anybody listening to this show won't be surprised that, uh, Ryan, is why is investor behavior so important that Paul put it at the very top of his list? What, what's your thinking on that? I think it's just because we're all human and we all have a way of getting emotional about decisions and when you see uh, a stock falling or you see the broader stock market falling, you think, oh my gosh, I have to protect myself, protect my investments or my family. And maybe it, the wise decision, although fundamentally flawed in the decision, is to get out. It's that fight or flight fear that's really rather primitive, I always When I talk to clients, I say, you know, this is actually, I think, from millions of years of <laughs> adapting and, you know, knowing when to you know, when when to fight and then when to le- take flight. And uh, well, I really think that it's, I think that's that pri- primitive part of our brain that, that takes over on this. Yeah, and I, I think something else that, that makes this especially important, and it's kind of foundational to everything else, is you can do everything else right, but then if you don't behave appropriately and stick to your plan and stay invested in your portfolio, it's going to totally undermine your just everything else that you do. Well, I've seen that fail time and time again. I, th- I always kid around with clients. Like, that's what God sent me for is mm-hmm. just to change this behavior pattern. Um, because it's just, it's the, if you don't get proper behavior, as David's saying, you really live a life of eternal financial <laughs> sadness. Fred, you've had a lot of experience on, you know, endowment boards and pension mm-hmm. boards, et cetera. Yeah. Are even the people that are supposed to know better, is there some susceptibility to this behavioral uh, bias? I, well, I'll just call it what it is, this tendency for humans to uh, react at the most imp- inopportune time. 
To a certain extent, but I think that it's uh, more controlled, and and uh, most uh, boards that invest uh, large amounts of money have advisors, and uh, they provide pretty much the same advice we're talking about here about uh, staying the course and having a plan. And uh, some of these organizations go through what are called lifeboat drill, right. drills. What would happen if the market went down by ten percent, twenty percent, thirty percent, forty percent, and so on? And uh, that helps a little bit. Now, a life uh, I've been on boats, and a lifeboat drill is not the same as uh, getting on the ship uh, right. on the boats in the Titanic. Right. It's a different uh, different world, not quite as uh, as serious, but at least it gives you an idea about what to think about. I always talk about I write lifeboat drills in my uh, quarterly newsletter. Not all the time, but you know when I feel it's essential. When people are in my, you know, kind of acting a little bit silly. And my intent when I do lifeboat drills is really a little more basic. It's just basically to badmouth the current conditions and try to just get people emotionally prepared for, uh, you know, the stuff that's yeah. happened in the last, oh, four to six weeks. Yeah. Um, it's really know. tough. Um, I, I know the drill. I know, know the rules and everything. But uh, I didn't rebalance in favor of stocks in uh, 2009, 2008. Sure. But, but I didn't sell either. Uh, that's a victory in itself. Yeah. I, you know, uh I talk about people even in industry back then in a major panic decline down when the broad market's down 57% and global portfolios are down even more. Uh, sometimes that's a victory by itself. If you can just get somebody to stay the course, let alone rebalance. Um, I, I was able to get most everybody to rebalance at the time. And I even got quite a few people to actually increase their equity exposure. Not because I thought it was, cool idea or you know just a a whim is because that's kind of what it took to get their portfolio yeah. back in shape for their lifetime plan to have such an expected return well ryan i noticed even the second thing of the five keys to investment success have nothing to do with portfolios this one says the presence of a goal-driven financial plan that spells out the purpose of investing is crucial or crucial to uh, investor success um, in other words what paul's saying is in a second key, it's really more about the presence of a financial plan. Why is that so crucial? Uh, the purpose of a plan is really to make sure that you're, you're pointing your money at achieving some goal. And if you're just investing with no purpose for the money, you have, tend to have more of a short-term perspective and you can react more frequently to the market conditions. Whereas if you have a financial plan, it is looking towards the future, it's funding a particular goal or a number of goals, and you know that the investments that you're in are chosen for that specific funding of those goals, you're less apt to jump in and out of the market or react in a way that's going to cause you to not reach those goals because of plans in place. So really this circles back to investor behavior, right? It's that plan that might be one of those, you know, the vessel between the fire and the water that mm -hmm. keeps people sane. You know, I, uh, I, I off, it's just the planning part, I, I guess what I'm, I was about to say is, you know, see what happens when you get older, you start forgetting where you were going. Just like portfolio needs to be pointed at something. I always say to, I frequently say to clients or prospective clients, the portfolio needs to be pointed at something. And you use those words. Mm -hmm. And that's what the plan does. It has to be aimed at something. It has to be point, it has to be going somewhere. And that's why I think allows people, you can remind them that, look, this is why we have the allocation in the portfolio we have. Um, David, is it fair to say that a portfolio is nothing more than a slave to a plan? Well, I would say that's definitely our belief system. And I think it, it does differ from what the way a lot of people invest. You think most, most of the people out there are still investing based on predictions, predictions about which investments are going to perform the best or predictions about when to get in and out of the market. And unfortunately, that approach just doesn't work. And like Ryan said, you're just much, much better off to just say, what am I trying to accomplish here? And then build a portfolio that's historically been appropriate uh, to accomplish those goals. Like it's delivered the expected returns that you need to get you where you want to go. Or at least it historically might have gotten you there with room to spare. Um, mm. I, so you're either really, uh, the way I guess we might say it collectively is you're either a planner or a prognosticator. You're one or the other. You can't be both. You either is or you isn't, uh, so to speak. And, and I, think I think that's key. And being going down the prognosticator route, I think that's one of the negatives that people who don't have a plan have at their back is they may read financial journals or maybe they just see the headlines in the news and it's, it's doom and gloom that you see whenever there's a downturn. Um, and one uh, 
prominent person we follow, uh, Carl Richards, calls it financial pornography because it's aimed at getting people to buy magazines. It's not aimed at providing sound financial advice that would be good for someone's long term. And I just was just curious to look at some articles that were uh, published. And one that came to my mind was it's time to time to markets. And it's amazing to me to see that. And, you know, who wrote that was the Wall Street Journal in October of 2012. Um, Well, look, I've said it time and time again. It's my belief that the mission of the financial journalists uh, is to completely extract your long-term historical perspective. Because Mm -hmm. if they can do that, then articles like that begin to make sense. If they can't, uh, you know, extract people, uh, their long-term historical perspective from their body, then those those articles are worthless and nobody's going to pay to yeah. see them. There's also a, a supply side effect that I go to lots of uh, meetings about investments and pension funds and things of that sort. That's what makes you such an exciting guy, Fred. And, and, and I've, never, uh, I've never seen a, a passive manager uh, make a presentation. Uh, it's always been uh, – Well, it'd be pretty short, right? Markets work. Right. <laughs> Two and, words. And, but it's always – I have a better idea or I'm smarter than everyone else or I have a better data source or whatever. Isn't that what we want to hear as investors? Yeah. I mean, isn't, isn't this really part of the problem? It's not just the, the, the mission of but, the financial right. journalists. It's really the mission of people themselves are I want to be BS'd. But also it's, uh, there's a self-interest on the part of, uh, of uh, money manager firms too. Oh. I, I, I got a, I guess, a, taken down a track for a particular a really large financial a firm on the internet. I decided to go ahead and read it, and they said, well, uh, now is the time for active management. 19 of our 20 funds have outperformed something or other, and this is the way to go. Uh, if you're just someone who doesn't really know very much about the situation and it's a reputable firm, you think, well, that's a, a great opportunity. Well, it also implies that past performance is, is right. indicative of future results, of which there's no evidence. Well, I don't think there's evidence. And in fact, that, it's that, probably perverse. I don't think that 19 of their 20 funds Probably uh, be, didn't. Be uh, a real index. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, adjusted index. for really what what's going on underneath. Yeah. We know study after study shows that, you know, and by the way, you can flip a coin, you know, a hundred times and mm-hmm. you will beat or exceed the average outcome on <laughs> a coin flip if you start thinking about the math. The third key, guys, uh, where Paul gets to the actual investment portfolio decision. So now it gets a little more exciting for people. And he said the first the most important part of when it comes to portfolio is to first figure out that asset allocation uh, question. So David, um, what's asset allocation? We hear, we use the phrase a lot. I try to be as careful as I can in my conversations with client. I try not to use jargon. I'm trying to, you know, teach you guys to never use jargon. Just you call it for what it is, but we still as advisors can fall into something as basic as, as asset allocation. That to, to us it probably seems so normal to use that but i bet if i asked half the people out there what's asset allocation they wouldn't come up with the appropriate they come close but so what is it i usually just explain it as the mixture of investments that you own so there are different types of investments out there um, and they're known as asset classes so they're kind of things that tend to behave similarly to one another would be considered uh, the same asset class Um, so an asset allocation is just you know how much am i going to put in different asset classes or different types of investments is kind of the, the simplest way to explain it. And there's I always explain it to people in terms of there's a broad level and then there's kind of a sub-level to it. Which so one's more important? The broad level is by far the most important. And when I say the broad level, what I'm talking about is how much you have in stocks versus bonds. So how much money you have invested in the great companies of America and the world, which I call rising in uh, rising income investments, and then income-producing investments such as bonds, CDs, et cetera. And then once you've got that figured out, and that really is way more important than the sub-allocation, at the end of the day, I'm a believer you should pretty much own kind of every type of publicly traded company. Uh, You want to be as diversified as possible, which we're going to get into more detail on that later. Um, But what you can start to do is just look at that sub allocation and it's probably you know maybe an extra five percent of your outcome is going to be dictated by the types of stocks that you hold and the types of bonds that you hold so like how much in large companies how much in small companies how much in value companies versus growth companies how much in the u.s versus international and even within international the same things that i talked about small versus large growth versus value and like i said i'm a believer you should own all of these things and there's 
unless you have a really good reason to differ from just kind of market cap weights, you, your default position is just kind of own the whole U.S. stock market, whole bond market to a certain degree, maybe stay shorter term on the bond side, um, and just be as diversified as you can be. And that's going to get you probably 95 plus percent of your investment outcome. So if you really don't want your head to swim, uh, if I wanted a, a very simple portfolio and we just tackled the first level of asset allocation, how much in the great companies of America and the world versus fixed income investments, such as bonds and CDs, I could do something, and this isn't a recommendation, I'm just making a point. Um, you have to do your do your own research here, but it still wouldn't be uh, irrational if someone did follow it. Um, I could use something as simple as the Vanguard Total World Stock Market Index for my one allocation into the great companies of America and the world, and a CD, or a short-term high-quality bond fund. I could literally have a two-asset allocation, in other words, we're going to get into these other allocate other uh, ideas of diversification, but again, it, it's a little bit commentary compared to that first one: stocks versus bonds. Well, you're listening to Paul Rudy's On the Money Radio Show on WDWS. I'm here with certified financial planner and retirement income certified professional David Rudy. I'm with financial advisor Ryan Repko, who also works at Rudy Wealth Management, and Dr. Fred. Again, you can call in at 356-9397 or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 351-5357. And for the first time, we are streaming the show live on Facebook. For any of you people out there, evidently, I might be one of the few people that rarely looks at Facebook. But evidently, there's, um, you know, 1,000 or 2,000 people in the world that actually listen to Facebook. And if you don't catch it live, don't worry about it. We're going to post it on Rudy Wealth. Com. We're going to get back. We're talking about my son Paul's Investopedia article, which recently appeared about the five steps uh, to becoming a better investor. And we've talked about investor behavior. Um, we've you know, we talked about asset allocation. We talked about having a financial plan, not necessarily in order. And now we're going to talk about diversification. Dave, you were leading into that, and diversification is basically spreading your money around to as many different investments as possible. It's certainly not a new concept, but it turns out it's really important to investment success. Ryan, why is that the case? The case is the old saying, you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. And so we don't have the foreknowledge to understand which particular companies are going to outperform the next, or which asset class, maybe is it going to be a tech industry, is it going to be communication, whatever it may be, we don't know in advance what will particularly uh, do better than the next. So we have to make sure that we're widely diversified, try to capture all the returns as broadly as possible. And I think... But, but, that, but that's easier to do today than it was 10 absolutely. years ago, certainly more than 20 and 30 years ago, Fred. I mean, when you see right. exchange-traded funds, which is just another form of mutual fund, it just trades during the day, and you see Schwab total market index or S&P 500 at three or four one hundredths of a percent and Vanguard and Fidelity have similar. I mean, we couldn't have imagined that. Could you have imagined that when you first started uh, uh, as an economics professor? No, not at all. And the other thing, is, there used to be uh, people would do some kind of maximizing procedure about uh, what's the uh, smallest number of stocks you have to hold to be diversified. And that's, no one cares about that anymore because right. no one uh, holds uh, stocks like that. So it's not that you have to have five different mutual funds. Uh, you get a lot of diversity with the one or two things you're talking about. Yeah, it really seems, Ryan and David and Fred, that diversification is sort of that only one free lunch thing there is, except maybe it's not completely free. Yeah. And it's so funny, Dr. Gertz, you bring up the, the number of stocks. I remember back to my finance class where yeah. they showed a graph and it said you have one stock that you had two diversification increases costs or risk goes down, and they said past 30 stocks in a portfolio, you don't get any additional benefit. And what I think is funny is that is that if your goal is to minimize risk, maybe there's something to be said about that. But most people's goal, I think, is not to minimize risk, it's to maximize return. Well, the, the real key to that is, and, and, and William Bernstein, um, the Efficient Markets Frontier or something, I think is what it is, brilliant brain surgeon turned financial advisor. He did a paper on that, and he said, well, that's true. Uh, if you're measuring risk, and that's basically what you're saying, and risk being volatility, you get past a 15 or 20 stock portfolio, you're going to have pretty similar fluctuation to the overall market. But what you can have is materially different ending outcomes of wealth. And at the end of the day, you don't take 
returns into the grocery store. You don't take fluctuation into the grocery store. You take money into the grocery store. And these proponents of 15 or 20 or 30 stock portfolios that are still claiming it's sensible have no idea that, yeah, a 15 or 20 stock portfolio can make you fabulously rich in a short period of time. But unfortunately, the inverse is also true. And you could do that at your family's peril. So it is interesting how guys how far we've come as an industry but yet sometimes you still as you said the wall street journal now is the time to time the market we'll see articles today tomorrow about you know the the diversification myth that you only need five stocks or or jim kramer on cnbc says you know his idea of diversification is five stocks this is that as carl richard called it financial pornography that's out there that really confuses people and much of it is by design, as I said. The financial media is trying to eliminate our long-term historical perspective. The last one on Paul's list, guys, is costs. Now we talk about costs, and that is minimizing your cost to do uh, to you know when you're investing. Uh, there's at least a negative one-for-one relationship with cost. Uh, something that bears, uh, you know, we, it's an idea that certainly justifies really paying attention to. Um, any thoughts on that? Just does that just go without saying, or does anybody want to touch on that one? I think it's it's fundamental, it's self-explanatory just, yeah. that there's at least that negative one. Well, uh, Paul was here last time, and we talked about that. Basically, the difference between actively managed funds and passive funds is the cost. So, on average, uh, um, actively managed funds are are going to give you less by the amount you pay in the cost. Yeah, and and that's the and certainly this also gets to this idea of controlling what we can control. And how much we diversify is something we can control. Our asset allocation is something we make a deliberate choice about, and we get to control that. Mm-hmm. Costs are another function where we determine, we decide who gets in our movie, a financial movie, and which costs there are. And uh, it just it's a, it's a critical component, not to be obsessed about. Um, one of the things, Dave, you've heard me say it a bunch of times, is we'll hear someone wax on about saving five basis points, but they're behaving in a way that costs them percentage points. And, uh, and, and and that's something I coined a while back. You know, you, you can't fester about basis points. They're important. You, you don't want to leave free money on the ground. But make sure that that's not blinding you from the emotional mistakes. And again, that was that behavioral issue Paul uh, began his article with, Five Keys to Investor Success, that's Investopedia. And uh, this all becomes circular. I I hope after doing this show since 1990, and I do get feedback from time to time that it is, you know, it begins to make sense because it's consistent. It's a consistent message, if anything. But everything seems to circle back to each other. You know, diversification is important. You can do it inexpensively. If, If you need to have a plan, and if you have all these things working for you, as I've said, that second one, having a plan, um, I did a commercial about this, and it's and I and I really believe this because it's true. In my 35-year career, if when I look at all failed investors and all successful investors, I can tell you the difference between one and the other is whether they had a plan, the absence or the presence of a financial plan. And we're going to get into that a little bit about what does a financial planner do here in the next part. But the key is so, so that. I think a lot of people, and Dave, maybe this is going to lead into our segue about what a financial planner does. I think when people talk about financial planning, people think, oh, I'm going to need this thick book and they're going to need to know what my cable bill is and how much I spend on groceries and all these. These are are not pleasant things. It doesn't need to have that much involved at all, at least in the retiree standpoint. Uh, If you want to get to that article, Five Keys to Investor Success on Investopedia.com, you can make sure to read the article on our company Facebook our, which we're on live today, and we'll post that later. Twitter, and we our company has Twitter, LinkedIn, and of course our media page on our website. Well, leading into that, and again, you're listening to Paul Rudy's On The Money radio show on WDWS.com. I'm here with Dr. Fred Gertz. Dr. Fred is always, he's the genius, resident genius as I put yeah. it. Maybe I uh, give, Deservedly uh, so. Yeah, I give a, a apology here that... Uh, we basically say the same thing every time, and the challenge is to uh, make it fresh. That's uh, that's what uh, Jason Zwig of the uh, Wall Street Journal said. I, I write uh, the same advice column. I, I write it uh, you know every week, every, uh, yeah. every year after year, and basically I want to say the same thing. So the question is, how do you how do you keep saying it without saying exactly the same thing? Uh, every time? I'll give you a funny story, Fred. The boys have heard it. So this is probably ten years ago. 
I, I, then I was writing a monthly newsletter, or pretty much monthly. And it occurred to me just exactly what Jason Dwight said. I'm basically saying the same thing month after month, quarter after quarter, year after year. So I basically stopped writing my monthly newsletter. I thought, oh, I'll write it every year or so. And after a few months that went by, I basically had a client revolt on my hand. And I explained to about a dozen of them that, well, I just felt like I was saying the same thing over and over again. And to a person, they said in so many words, that's what we like. Yeah. It's that consistent message that keeps us sane. It's those lifeboat drills saying, don't get too used to this up market. You know, there's always these temporary setbacks in my what I call lifeboat drills. We, you know, it's one thing to have a financial IQ, and it's really important. And I think our firm does a really good job and has a very high financial IQ. That is, we, of course, we know all the technical aspects of financial planning and trying to help people create the best life they can with the money they have. That's kind of a given that, that you should have that expertise. It's the emotional quotient, okay, the, the emotional quotient or the EQ that is at least as important. And that's the ability to connect with people and connect their money with their lives in a way that shows that you understand them, you respect them, you care for them, you protect them. We're very much protectors. I think a good financial planner and advisor is a protector. And you know this emotional quotient uh, is important because not only is it important for us not to become emotional, I mean, that's key, but it's, it's not a given. Uh, I find that, you know, I always tell the story uh, one of the problems with investors are they're, when it comes to their money and their wealth, they're just as emotional as they are about their health care decisions. I mean, you know, when you think about people facing significant medical issues, highly emotional. These are highly emotional conditions, highly emotionally charged events. People, I find, are the same way about their wealth care, if you will, as they are with their health care. And you hope and you look for a sensible advisor that is not as emotional as that, but I find that in the industry, most or many advisors are just as emotional about these concepts as they are with their clients. And I, as why I put it in my non, you know, <laughs> clever way, you get nuts dealing with nuts. <laughs> so this high EQ that I talk to the guys about, my sons and Ryan, my son-in-law, is look, financial IQ is important, guys, but make sure that you're developing that financial EQ. Because if you can't connect, understand, care for, protect, respect, and get them to behave properly, which is an, always circles back to this emotional behavior issue, you are not going to help people. You're going to hurt them. And if, if everything we do needs to be geared toward, everything we believe needs to be geared into, we do this because it makes people's lives better, happier, and more fulfilled. Yeah, there's a the idea of following a plan and staying on, on course. There's a... a Unrelated situation, but it related moral. That, that when uh, Ronald Reagan had op an operation for abdominal cancer, uh, they gave him the special treatment. All kinds of you know, ten different doctors there doing things. And in the end, they said that he'd been better off. They just done the standard procedure the way it's written and, and follow the rules and go on from there. So sometimes. Uh, doing it the, the way that you plan and sticking to the plan is really valuable. And the plan could be simple. It, it can just, it could be as simple as I need an income from my portfolio that I'm not going to outlive. It doesn't have to necessarily involve a state planning, all these things. Of course, those issues are critical, but they shouldn't, you know, we don't let perfect be the enemy of the good. And, uh, and, and so when we talk about planning and David, um, basically listeners to the show know that we're financial planners, you know, people, Look, it's confusing out there, right? The landscape for investors is confusing. Everybody calls themselves a financial advisor, but yet most people are nothing more than glorified salespeople. Their industry just went to court. We'll get into that maybe. We probably won't have enough today. That basically pled to the court that we're not fiduciaries. This is the brokerage industry and the insurance industry, the annuity industry. We're just salespeople. And there's this real confusion out there. So financial planning is probably just another people are confused about. So I wanted you to spend a little time today. We have about 20 minutes left or a little less. Uh, let's talk about financial planning, what it is, who does it, what's the purpose, all those things. Um, it seems to me the short answer is that when I have to give people, Mike, if I had to just come up with a really short, it's helping people 
create the best life possible with the money they have. It's kind of connecting those dots, connecting people's lives with their money in a sensible fashion. Um, so yesterday you published, David, uh, a blog that pretty much spells out everything financial planners do. So this is fresh in your mind. Tell us a little bit you know, about that article, but in essence, the, the crux of the article is what is a financial planner and what do they do? Yeah, and the motivation for this article is actually, I think, the reaction I get from a lot of people when I tell them I'm a financial advisor. And I can tell pretty quickly just by the look on their face, they, they're kind of like, oh, that's nice. And, they, and and some people legitimately ask, like, well, what does a, like a wealth management firm really do? Right. Like they, people don't always understand that. So I figured it made sense to write an article to explain what we do. I also think, just to even start out, I think it's really helpful to explain what a financial advisor does shouldn't do, or at least a, a okay. real financial advisor, um, because I think that's what most And there is a difference between what you call a real financial advisor and just someone who calls themselves a financial advisor. Exactly. So what I think most people think of when they think of a financial advisor is, I'm going to go to you and you're going to do something really smart with my money that's going to basically increase my investment returns. So you're going to pick really good mutual funds that are going to outperform their benchmark or stocks that are going to outperform the market or you're gonna figure out when to get in and out of the market at the right time so I don't have to experience the declines and I'll still get the upside. And unfortunately, that's actually what a lot of financial advisors try to do. Well, I think that's, um, and I think that's really how people have been indoctrinated over the decades. That, that I think that's what they've been told that that's what financial advisors do. And so they walk in expecting you to do that, don't they? Yeah, I mean, I think a certain amount of people do. And I, I think, like you said, that's just because that's what a lot of like the financial media that's kind of what they they that's the message they send in terms of like this is what you have to do to be a successful investor and i think a lot of advisors do take that approach well um, I, you but, know it, what i find interesting about that is most people seek out an advisor because what they're doing is not working and it's those three things you know it's forecasting the economy timing the markets trying to handicap future relative performance on past relative performance and they can't do it, and then they come in wanting somebody else to do what really can't be done. They just don't know it. Right, and I think what you said at the very end there is the key. I am of the belief that no one can consistently do those things. At least they can't, in good conscience, promise to you that they're going to be able to deliver those things in the future. So what I think a real financial advisor does is kind of what Ryan talked about earlier, but you start by just saying, look, what do you want to accomplish in your life? And your money is just a tool that you can use to help you accomplish those things. So any real financial planning is really just kind of planning out your life and using your money as kind of a means to an end. Is that first conversation uh, that you typically have, uh, a good part of it up front is really, it, the money doesn't really get spoken about until quite a while, does it? And I think that surprises people. No, and I don't think it should be. I think the analogy that I've heard a lot of good financial advisors use is, you know, if you came into my office and I immediately told you, oh, here's the investment product you should buy or here's the portfolio you should invest in, that'd be like you going to a doctor's office, him not asking you any questions and then prescribing you a medication. It doesn't make any sense. First, you need to kind of diagnose the issue. And in financial terms, diagnosis is just saying, okay, what do you want to accomplish? And then step two of that is, okay, where are you at right now? I, now that I know where you want to end up, we need to see like, Okay, what, what financial resources do you have that we can use to help get you where you want to go? Is part of that process on the front end also discovering where they came from? How did they grow up as a child? How do they feel about money, which is how we grew up as a child, I find? Um, what investments, what is it that hasn't worked for you? What is it that you, that's worked that you think has worked that you really liked? Kind of why are we here? Well, I think that type of stuff is important because it's going to inform the recommendations that you ultimately make um, because it, it affects people's decision-making when it comes to finances. It affects what type of approach they're attracted to. So if someone's a lot older and they're just a more conservative person or maybe they went through an experience in their life where they lost everything or their parents lost or everything. they grew up in the shadows of the depression like many of the people walking through our doors and they heard the stories they are really legends about people losing everything in the 20s and 30s well if you, if you know that that's the case then you may start looking at okay here's a more conservative asset allocation and the cost of you know you can make that work if right. that's what you want to do and that that jives with your personality and your demeanor 
but here's what we're going to have to do to make the plan work. With but there's a sense of reality sometimes. You say, well, I understand how you feel. It makes perfect sense that you would feel that way after your experience in life and your lifetime experience. But here's what's going to happen if, you, if we allow you to do that. Here's what it looks like. You sure you want to do that? In other words, you're not necessarily going to tell them what to do. You're just going to show them, well, we could take that path, but here's the outcome. Do you like what you see? The answer is either yes or no. Right. And I think you have to be more or less like a financial psychologist to kind of look into the person's psyche and just see, given the assets you have, maybe you could spend seven, ten thousand dollars $10,000 a month, but you're not going to because that's not the way you're wired. And if we know that in advance, we can help the client discover maybe more meaningful ways to leave the money or to share or gift the money. And, and, and that leads me to something, and we'll get back to that, is this is a very human experience. I mean, mm-hmm. people are talking about robo-advisors, which is kind of a... Mm-hmm strange concept a robot and an advisor you're one or you're the other and you said look into their psyche it really becomes looking into their eyes this is you need to look at somebody in their eyes and 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 look at their their facial expressions and their body expressions i tell the boys a lot look i've learned to you hear the stated question but what's the real question that you're asking me or what's the question under the question and I even take it further, and I'm, and I'm trying to get the guys to develop this, and I think they are. What about the question that didn't get asked? What about that flinch? What about that first time you saw the client smile in that first meeting is when they talked about giving money every year to the Boy Scouts or uh, maybe making sure that their grandchildren have the education their children got because they're going to intervene. This is really all part of that financial planning process. Didn't mean to hijack you, Dave, but... <laughs> But I did. Yeah, there's even a, <laughs> even a more uh, basic things. I suspect a lot of people don't even know how they're doing. Uh, so if you ask most people, how is your investments the last two years? It's great because the market's been up. It's great compared to what? Right. So you'll probably compared to tell, what? tell them whether they're doing well compared to a reasonable expectation about returns. Right. And you can kind of say, well, look, if you just keep doing what you're doing, here's where you're going to end up. But even, yeah. if you're, but even if you're doing well in terms of, Ten uh, percent return in the last two years. That doesn't mean you're. It may not be right. pointed properly. In yeah. other words, maybe your uh, your plan doesn't require you to ever earn ten percent a yeah. year. In fact, a portfolio that can do that is a portfolio you yeah. don't need, and you're going to experience temporary declines that you really don't need to. But and the I, point I is, that's uh, point. they may have actually left. Uh, Two or three points on the table, even though they yep. think they're doing great. <laughs> Daniel and I always kind of joke about that, my brother Daniel, because if you ask anyone who's a do-it-yourself investor, and, and they'll tell you about kind of what they're doing, and then they say, almost every single time, it's super vague. It's, and I do all right for myself, or I do pretty good. And it's <laughs> like, like it says like the person walking into the casino. Exactly. And like Dr. Gertz said, the, the key is, well, compared to what? It's like, say you had a 100% stock portfolio, and you have earned 7% annualized over your lifetime. Let's just take a really long time horizon. Well, you did all right. Like, right. That's pretty good. But the expected return of large company stocks, if you just look at historical data, right. they've delivered about 10%. So you've really underperformed by you know 3% over right. that time. So you might feel like you're doing okay, but again, it's the compared to what thing. And this is really what planning gets into. I mean, we're talking about the softy, mushier sides right now. But that is the prelude to connecting the dots and helping people end up with the best life possible with the money they have. Yep. Well, and then once you've clarified essentially where they want to end up or what they want to do with their money and accomplish with their money, you know where they are right now in terms of their financial assets, future income streams, basically all their financial resources. That's when a financial advisor takes all that info and kind of goes back and crunches the numbers and actually creates a financial plan. So in my article, I wrote, you know, what, what types of things does a financial plan actually address? Because like you said, I think people either think it's this overly complex thing where they're going to look at every dollar that you spend and look at budgeting and whatnot, and other people just kind of have no idea what goes into it. Well, I think of, you know, the key issues to me in terms of financial planning is, okay, how much do I need to save while I'm working? The budgeting kind of is part of that process. That's something you need to figure out on your own. Like, if this is how much I need to save, what am I going to have to do to actually accomplish that? Um, but then beyond that, what type of investment account should I contribute to? Where should I put that savings? Once I've got that money saved, um, how do I invest it? That's the asset allocation decision. If I do those things, 
when can I expect to retire with a lifestyle that's similar to the one that I have now or the lifestyle that I want? When I'm retiring, how much, how much can I spend in retirement total? How much can I safely withdraw from my investments to supplement my retirement income without ever having to worry about running out of money? What types of insurance do I need? And just as importantly, what types of insurance do I not need? And then for retirees, when should I claim Social Security? Those are just a few of the many issues, but those are the key ones. Those are the key issues that really take some brain power because some of them, we're going to go to a call here in just a moment, um, it's, and I'm going to grab D. Just be patient, D. I'll get you in less than a minute. Um, some of these are big stake stuff, right? If we get the wrong claiming strategy for Social Security, and the fact they're so interconnected that you might even do Roth conversions on the front end if you delay Social Security. So, you know, again, we get to the financial IQ part and the financial EQ, which is the emotional quotient, and that's important. We're going to go to D on line one. D, how can we help you today? Well, I had a question. Yes, ma'am. Financial planning. I was wondering, does the state of Illinois have an estate tax? Yes, they do. They do? What is it? Do you know? It's for the $4 million a person right now. I don't think there's any portability, but that's another issue. But it's pretty large. It's larger than most people will come under the net, but it's oh, $4 okay. million. It's not the over 11 plus million at the federal okay. bracket. So well, it's that's a, what I was wondering. Knowing the state of Illinois, I figured they did have one because they never miss a beat for catching I'm surprised it's not a dollar. <laughs> I'm surprised anything over a dollar does, just doesn't right, get confiscated. Yeah. Okay, thank you All so All right, much. D, glad we can answer that Bye. for you. All right. All right, Dave. So we got, uh, oh, we got about six minutes left. Um, so you've explained all, all, some of the complicated parts that we have to do some thinking about. And actually, it's some pretty incredible thinking because you can't really answer any one of them by themselves. They're all interconnected. In other words, one decision impacts another. It's kind of this matrix type thinking. And I think, I think that's really what gives do-it-yourself for such a hard time is, is these are huge stakes games. And then the other part about trying to do it on your own without a financial planner is now you're going to play that second guessing game for the rest of your life. And it's, it's really emotional turmoil. And it's not just second guessing the things you do. It's second guessing the things you don't do. But after you've done all that and you're presenting this plan, my question is, how do you do it in a way where it makes sense to people? You can't be talking about alphas and betas and standard deviations and probabilities and Monte Carlo analysis. How do you do it? Well, I'm a big fan of being basically as simple as you can be. Um, Carl Richards, the financial author Ryan mentioned earlier, he has a book called The One-Page Financial Plan, and he's a big fan of consolidating your plan down into a single page. And I think that really, really resonates with people because they don't want to read through this big book of information and all the assumptions and things behind it. When I think they want of, to know what they want to know. When I think of a plan, it's here's what we're going to do, not all of every single little detail that helps you arrive at what you're going to do. It's kind and of that, then, am I okay? Right. If something happens to me, is my spouse or family going to be okay? Have I done everything I wanted to do? Have I made a difference? Is there anything I'm missing? That type of stuff. Right. It's, it's really high level. Here's what we're going to do. Here's our plan. Retire at this date. Here's how much you can spend. Here's how our kind of monitoring and adjustment process works. Um, just all the basic stuff. Here's and we've adopted that. And we've adopted that one-page sort of plan. You know, sometimes there's a little amendments behind it. This explains portfolio stuff just for that detail. But essentially, we've got it down to one page. And I think literally most of the time, it's so I can spend this and I'm okay. And I can buy that cottage and I'm okay. And our long-term care needs, you've addressed that, David and Ryan. Um, you know, looks like you've covered everything and it's all on one page. And, and then you can, if then, then if they want to go into the financial IQ part, you're happy to sit there for an hour or two. It never happens. You know, well, you can only dream, right? That someone's going to ask you, how did you figure that out, David? I mean, tell me about that simulation. It just doesn't happen, does it? Well, and I think most people at the end of the day trust their advisor because they realize they don't have the expertise to really evaluate whether what he's saying is optimal or the best course of action. They're in your office because they they trust you. They assume that you know what you're doing. And and, you know, some people compare different advisors and compare their recommendations, and there's nothing wrong with doing that and, the, and, then and after, seeing which one's sensible. Okay. And then after that, it's implementing. You have to actually do it. Uh, then it has to be monitored. Can you just a brief on that? Yeah. So I think that people put way too much stock in initial projections of a financial plan. 
there are actually advisors out there who will do a one-time financial plan for people at a kind of a flat fee and then give it to them and say, here you go. I think that's disserving people because really a one-time financial plan and initial projections aren't going to do you any good over a lifetime. Uh, at the end of the day, what you're doing is you're guessing. It's, hey, these are some realistic assumptions for how things might play out. But what's going to end up happening is you're going to have to look every single year, really every day, and see how things actually play out in reality and then make adjustments over time. Right. We've done thousands of simulation, but you only get one life. Exactly. And, and we're going to monitor that one life and we're going to make adjustments where they need to be made. And we know ahead of time where those places, those spots are to make those adjustments. And I think that's why, you know, sometimes people question maybe the need for a financial advisor on an ongoing basis. But I think, you know, if, if you have the ability to make those ongoing adjustments on your own, more power to you. But I think most people, that's why they like having that, that advisor in their life kind of for the rest of their life. It's to help them make adjustments, spot when they need to make adjustments, tell them what types of adjustments they can make and kind of talk things through with them. And, and the, even the adjustments need to be pointed towards their ultimate lifetime outcome, what is their desire. Just like the portfolio allocation needs to be pointed somewhere, those adjustments need to be made because the plan is pointed somewhere. So they have to be very specific. And that's not so easy to do. Well, I think that gives, uh, we got about another minute left, Dave. That gives a, a really good explanation of uh, the kind, kind of from start to finish, how the financial planning process works. Uh, you know, again, we kidded about it. It's like you know, Barbara telling someone they need a haircut, but everybody should do themselves a, 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 you know, a favor. Find a trusted financial advisor that has a reputation for uh, a proven track record, a reputation for putting their clients' interests first, so not as people before profits, and then try to find one you know, that has a reputation for being empathetic to a firm that's known for caring, uh, a firm that's known for respecting, a firm that's known for protecting and a firm that's, you know, make, makes things understandable. Everybody should look for that. Guys, that's it. Thanks for listening to Paul Rudy's On The Money. We'll post the Facebook Live in a bit. Thanks for listening. Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On The Money. Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.